There are so many that this world idolize. I can think, this, this is dating me and some of you, that we remember the commercials back in the day about Michael Jordan and the expression, I want to be like Mike. Does that still ring in your ears? Remember that? Others have risen to a similar place of prominence. LeBron James, Kevin Durant, and I've always wanted to say this name publicly, and I've never had the opportunity, but I'm going to say it this morning. I'm probably going to butcher it, but I'll try not to. Giannis Antetokounmpo. I said it. Yes. Um, Tom Brady, Jerry Rice, Patrick Mahomes, all of these um, stellar athletes, they all possess some similar traits, extreme focus and a passionate drive to succeed. They also all possess another similar trait. They cannot bear the weight of worship. They cannot bear the weight of worship. They will not be able to satisfy and they cannot produce or provide or even offer salvation. On the other hand, each week we gather together and we study the Scriptures and we learn about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And He offers to us salvation. And He offers to us satisfaction. Our Savior can bear the weight of worship. He is worthy of worship because He provides abundantly, perfectly what He offers. Everything about our Savior is fantastically amazing. We can think about His nature as the God-man. Divine, 100%. And human, 100%. As we think about His ministry, He is our high priest. He presents God to us and He presents us to God. He is our advocate as accusations rightly come against us from ourselves and from the adversary. The Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous advocate, says that has been declared forgiven and He or she has been declared righteous. He is our advocate. He is perfect at defending us. And He is our Lord. He is our Lord. He righteously reigns over us as the head over His body, the church. These ministries of the Lord Jesus amaze us. And then we think about His work as Redeemer. Purchasing our lives. Purchasing our souls. Laying down His life. The just... For the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the spirit, uh, in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. As we look at the Lord Jesus in the Gospels and we see his humanity, we can see that he demonstrates the perfect kind of humanity. Exactly what mankind was designed to be, he demonstrated at every turn. And so, we're amazed. His character, speaking the truth, 
His character of humility, of kindness, of righteousness, and of gentleness. As we read through the Gospels about our Savior, as we observe Him from scene to scene, as we hear the words of His mouth and see the works of His hands, we are impressed. We are amazed. He is worthy of worship. This morning, during our time of worship in the Word, our time has two, two purposes. To prepare our hearts for what many in churchianity call Holy Week. And also to prepare us for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And so this time, as we meditate through the passages and consider the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem on a donkey, God will give us a view toward how we should view our Savior through these days that for, again, uh, the larger community of religious circles, this highlights a very important week. A holy week. I obviously, as you can tell, how, how I'm framing this, I, I think that the result of that holy week makes every day equally holy. The results of the Lord Jesus Finishing the work of His Father. Finishing the work of obtaining us as His own possessions by laying down His life makes every single day holy day. Not just Sundays or a particular Sunday in the year or a particular week. But what Jesus has accomplished that we observe in these days lets us know that God has accomplished something amazing that has ramifications for every day of our lives. This week begins with the triumphal entry. Some call it Palm Sunday. Take a look at Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. We're going to read right down through verse 40. God's Word says, And when He had said these things, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When He drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, and on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as He rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as He was drawing near, already on the way down the 
Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is a scene with vivid detail because it's a historic event. And this is also a scene packed with symbolism because it is an anticipated event. This was something that the the Scriptures were pointing to and leading to. And so God has provided symbols in this text as well as vivid details of its historicity. As we look through it this morning, we'll notice three aspects of this triumphant entry of our Savior into Jerusalem. We'll notice the celebration of the King, the character of the King, and the conquest of the king. We'll start with this celebration. Now, as you know, every year, this is the 19th time I've preached on Palm Sunday. And so, there are four passages (laughs) that the Gospels convey this with, and there are Old Testament passages that are pointing toward this. And so you're going to notice from year to year much similarity, and I try to to really change it up from year to year, but it's the same event. What are we supposed to learn from thinking through this same event year after year? Well, first of all, as you see this this scene of the Lord Jesus coming in, uh, we have to notice the celebratory nature of what is happening. The multitudes are lined up down the sides of the street. And they have come prepared. They, they're throwing their cloaks in the way. And they're running around with palm branches. And they're shouting messianic statements. Statements that indicate that they know that this is the one who's been promised throughout all the years and all those pages of Old Testament history. And so there's this grand and climactic event that's taking place as we behold the scene You can observe two different kinds of responses to Israel's Messiah. There's the people that received Him very gladly. How do we know they received Him gladly? Look at verses 37 and 38. It says, And as He was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of His disciples began to what? Rejoice and praise God. How? With a loud voice. They're they're really extolling Him. they're, They're excited and confident. And so they're calling out with a loud voice. And what were they talking about? All the mighty works that they had seen. We read as part of our Scripture reading this morning, John chapter 12 and that account of the triumphal entry. And one of the statements that is made in that passage is that there was a group of people that were there 
because they had either seen or heard about the events taking place in John chapter 11, which was the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus was dead and in the tomb for four days. And Jesus articulated a few words. Lazarus, come forth. And he rose and walked out of the tomb. Nobody takes dead people and makes them alive. It doesn't happen. Except for one. God. And that's exactly what God does again and again and again and again and again. How many of you have received from God spiritual life? So again and again and again and again and again and again and again. You were spiritually dead and had no recourse to make yourself alive. But Jesus calls out and said, you up from the grave now. And you up from the grave came. This is what God does. He gives life to the dead. And in this scene... There's a group of people, a multitude of people that were there because they saw it happen with physical life. And so there's this group of people and they say, this this is something that only God can do. This is the one we've been waiting for. That's one response. The whole world had gone after him in accordance with the Gospel of John. Look down at verse 48. Speaking of the Pharisees, they did not find anything that they could do about the fact that they were there, that Jesus was there. And the reason that they didn't have anything they could do was because of what it says at the second part of verse 48. For all the people were hanging on his words. Because they knew that Jesus was this anticipated Messiah. They were, they're amazed by the work of Jesus raising a dead man. Everything that came out of his mouth was something that they wanted to hear. I don't want to miss a second. They didn't have DVRs back then to pause it to go to the bathroom and come back. So I'm not leaving. They're hanging on every word. This is one response. The enthusiastic response. The worship response. The believe response. The I need more response. There's another response in this crowd. A little different. Look at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, will you read it with me? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. All right. Down in verse 47, we see a similar uh, tenor from them. He, Jesus, was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to do what? So they're, they're telling him what to do. And they're seeking to destroy him. The one that speaks life into existence. Is this a winning battle or a losing battle? It's a losing battle. Now it may have some appearances of winning. Because at one point, 
He's on a cross, seemingly defeated. And in the next scene, he's being wrapped up and placed in someone else's tomb, seemingly defeated. So did they, did they seem to have some kind of a victory? They seem to have, and yet we know the rest of that story. Right in the heart of this chapter, we see some of the reason, some of the problem of what's going on. In verses 41 through 44, we see this portion of Luke's accounting of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Stop right there. Now this is the difference, or one of many, many differences, between God in the flesh and just flesh. Because you and I see this situation, if we were one of Jesus' disciples, we would have seen it very similarly to the crowd. We're looking around and saying, look, it's finally happening. It's finally working. Jesus is coming in. People are throwing their cloaks on the ground. They're, they're screaming out His name. This is glorious. Look at what's going on. This is, this is what we've been waiting for. This is why I left my father and my mother and my fishing boats and my business and my tax collecting office. This is why I left it all. For this glorious celebration. So they're all excited. I would say, wouldn't you? And what is Jesus' response? Tears. Why? Verse 42, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know, because you did not know the time of your visitation. I love the word visitation. In this situation, it has a bit of a sad connotation because here's Jesus is offering himself to the people. They have an external demonstration of acceptance and belief and yet in their heart as a nation now some of these individuals probably were gloriously redeemed but as a nation they had rejected the messiah and so jesus sees the the evidence of acceptance but he knows the reality of their rejection so he weeps over them and declares that there was going to be grave problems for the nation of Israel, not necessarily all these individuals, because many of these individuals uh, either were redeemed at that point or were going to be redeemed having seen the risen Christ. Because we know so many in that uh, environment came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Read the book of Acts. But the nation itself had rejected Him. And... Jesus says, you didn't know the time of your visitation. That term visitation has the idea of God providing and supplying. Supplying something. In the book of Ruth, it's the, there was a great famine. They, 
uh, Ruth, uh, or what's her name? Thank you, Naomi and her family went away and they found out that God had visited Israel with bread. In other words, God had supplied their need for food. Well, the visitation of that time was God supplying physical needs. But remember the, the, the statement about how God visits us? He visits us. What, what is man that you are uh, mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him. The concept there is providing us with himself. And Jesus was offering himself to the nation. And they said, you're not what I'm looking for. I conceive you much differently than this. What you're offering, that's not what I need. I want something else. And so this rejection, in the face of this pandemonium, this glorious celebration, is pretty interesting. And I think it's important for you and I to think about how we respond to God's offering of himself. Because he offers himself to us today. My question for you is, do you, do you suppose what he offers you is what you really need? He offers to you himself life, peace, joy, forgiveness, righteousness. He offers everything. He offers satisfaction in himself. Do you find him and his offering to be enough? Well, there's a celebration here. That's the scene that we're seeing. And there's a lot of sim symbolism here. Jesus is riding on a donkey that had never been uh, ridden on before. This, kind, this is a demonstration of, uh, of purity. Excuse me. The clothes are strewn in the, in the pathway and on the donkey itself. This is a, a symbolism of submission. They're saying, yes, this is the king and, and we'll, we'll do what he says. There's the palm branches that are being waved around and people are running around with palm branches in their, in their hand. And that's a, a, a symbol of victory. Victory. Then there's the proclamation of the crowd. Uh, in the, the four Gospels, the proclamation is slightly different because there's a lot of proclamation going on. And so some people are saying it one way, some people are saying it another way, but, and, and maybe it was in, in uh, multiple waves, but there's a lot going on. Listen to these different four renditions of these messianic expressions. In Luke 19.38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king. And he's not coming for his own sake. He's coming in the name of the Lord. And then in Matthew, it's Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means, oh, save us, son of David. He's the one that the promises for kingship in Israel were all based upon. Save us, oh, king or son of David. And then in Mark chapter 11, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And so there's this expression that, okay, this is not only the king, but he's ushering in the kingdom that was promised to David. 
And then in John chapter 12, it's Hosanna, oh save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So it kind of incorporates a little bit of all of it there. All of these proclamations indicate that this crowd knew this was an appointed day. An appointed day. This scene was foretold by the prophet Zechariah. Listen to these words. They'll be on the screen. From Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we have this expression here. It's, it was foretold in the prophets that this exact event was going to take place. And it's unfolding before their eyes. There's a lot here. There's a lot of reasons for them to rejoice. There's a lot of reason for them to shout aloud. They're celebrating this divinely ordained event. So there's a celebration of the king. And even to a, of greater importance still, there is something that we need to see from this passage and this, the imagery here that, that really is helpful to us, and it's the character of the king. The character of the king. There's something amazingly appealing about our Savior. And it's captured very well in this passage in Zechariah 19. Excuse me, Zechariah 9. Listen to these words again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There's, there's a lot here, and we, we're not going to be able to Un unveil all of it. Just I want for us to have this, just at least a glimpse and a, and a sense of it, because there's a lot to the nature and character of our Savior that that draws our attention, that impresses us, and that we desire to to hold out before other people, so they would see Him as well, the way that we do. First of all, this humility. Listen to these words from Philippians chapter 2. It's a familiar passage. Jesus' humility is obvious again and again. But in Philippians 2, it says, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord Jesus, here in this scene, he's riding in on a donkey. Well, that's, that's humbling, right? Normally you'd see a king coming in on a chariot, right? That would, that would make sense, but he's riding in on a donkey. But that's just a forerunner of the real humility, and it's just a glimpse of the humility that he, that he demonstrated in 
condescending and taking on human form. But not only taking on human form and experiencing all the things of humanity, like tiredness and thirst and exhaustion and rejection and all of these kinds of things, he went to an even greater extent when he laid down his life. Humbled, naked, bloodied, and crucified. Even his invitation to us to come is amazingly humble. Listen to these words from Matthew 11. It's a familiar passage. I should have had it written out. I only have the reference there. But the passage reads this way. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus lets us know of his humility and his gentleness. He really, he's, he's really amazing. Watch him as you read through the scriptures, as you read through the gospels. Watch him in his interaction with sinners. Listen to his words and watch his actions as he deals with those who are lame handicapped, mute, blind, deaf, leprous, unable to walk. Listen to his words and watch his actions. And you will see the humility with which he acts. You see him demonstrate a ferocity on a few occasions, but never to those sinners who are coming to him with neediness. But those who demonstrated themselves to think that they have a righteousness of their own. And so you see Jesus flipping over the tables or calling people whited sepulchers, saying that the poison of asps is in their tongue, essentially. Why is, he, why is he demonstrating something other than gentle and lowliness there? Because these, in those settings, are turning people to look to themselves to meet the standards to make it to heaven. Whereas Jesus said, I am the standard for you to make it to heaven. Come to me. And when someone comes to him, they find him to be what? Gentle and lowly in spirit kind in spirit his character is amazing and you know ladies and gentlemen the starting point and the end goal of the church is not about pointing to ourselves and our credentials and our ministries and our accomplishments but pointing one another to the perfect work of Jesus Christ constantly reminding one another of what he is like and what he provides. This is the start point and the end goal of church ministry is to remind one another of the perfect, satisfying, 
sufficient work of Jesus Christ. You know, this passage doesn't only tell us of Jesus' humility, but it also speaks of his righteousness. He was righteous in his deeds. That is very obvious. Every single thing that the Father called for him to do, he did to perfection. Every law that the Old Testament held over him, he fulfilled perfectly. So he demonstrated righteousness. But not only does he demonstrate righteousness, he has righteousness with him. He's coming in righteousness and he's coming with humility. And that righteousness he has as a a gift that he offers. Listen to these words from Philippians chapter 3. It says, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. This is Paul's testimony. But that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so Jesus comes in humility and he comes in righteousness, doing righteous things and providing righteousness for those that come to him. Well, there's so much more that I'd love to say, but can we summarize this section with this statement? Without Jesus' righteousness, we would have nothing to stand on. Jesus is all our righteousness. Jesus is all our righteousness. We sing about that occasionally. I think it may have been in one of the one of the phrases in one of the songs we sang this morning. I think from nothing but the blood. Jesus is all our righteousness. The reason that we have a standing before our judge one day is because Jesus is all our righteousness. Is his righteousness flawed in any way? If that is your righteousness, if he has granted that to you through faith, then you stand with confidence on the final day. Isn't it wonderful? This is his character, humility and righteousness. And he comes to conquest. So there's the celebration of the king, the character of the king, and the conquest of the king. Now we can talk about that in two stages. We're not going to talk about the second stage. That stage is still to come where Jesus will rule in perfect righteousness. All the wrongs will be made right. It's a glorious thing. We live in anticipation of that day. But we're talking right now about the fact that he, as he comes, he comes having salvation. Look at what it says again in Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He has salvation. He's, He's ready to provide something for you. This is exactly what the people of Israel rejected. I'm coming to provide for you a righteousness that you need, a salvation that you need. And he wept. He wept as this celebratory scene took place because the people of Israel didn't realize that they had a need. He came to bring a conquest. What that conquest was was to save people from themselves. Save people from their sin. And save people from the the consequences of their sin. He came to provide a conquest of salvation. This is why it can be said by the Apostle, uh, by John the Baptist, the 
He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came to offer that salvation. He came to offer that forgiveness. He came to offer that life in exchange. He came to offer that life in exchange for our lives. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. I'm going to say this slowly. For our sake, he, speaking about God the Father, made him, speaking about God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The exchange is this. You, you, you come to me with your sin, and I will come to you with my righteousness. And this is exactly what Jesus did. The triumphant entry was leading to this Good Friday where Jesus, when on trial, was essentially pronounced worthy of crucifixion because before the foundation of the world, God had determined that He was going to be the sin bearer. He became sin for us. And when Jesus was on that cross some 2,000 years ago, God condemned him guilty of sin, even though he knew no sin. You want to know why that is? Because you came. You came to him and said, Here I am, me and all my sin. This is what I have to offer you. And Jesus became sin. And paid the price for that sin. And removed the guilt and condemnation against that sin. He took that condemnation on himself. That's called propitiation. And he said, here. Here's my righteousness in place of your sin. Yeah. Hallelujah. It's called justification. God takes all our sin, places it on Jesus. God takes all his righteousness, places it on our account. How? Through faith in Christ. This is why the Gospels and, and the writings of the New Testament are constantly calling us to call upon the name of the Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is through faith in Christ that we receive the forgiveness of our sin and the granting of eternal life and righteousness that is desperately our need. And, and so this morning as we reobserved Jesus' triumphant entry, coming into Jerusalem, weeping over the, 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 the nation, but seeing the celebration going on and seeing the character of, of Christ and what He's offering, <coughs> we're prepared to, to think on Friday and this coming Sunday about the, the glorious atonement of Christ on our behalf. But we're also prepared to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Because we're thinking about the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The Lord Jesus Christ came to bear the weight of our sin. And you know, while every human being on this earth in its history outside of the Lord Jesus 
none of them can bear the weight of worship. The Lord Jesus Christ can bear the weight of worship because He brings with Him a salvation that, that removes a debt and replaces that debt with an abundance of Himself and righteousness and satisfaction. He can bear the weight of worship because of what He has to provide for us and who He is as our righteous Savior.